how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, back cultural to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that planet, is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential or questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. Action informed by knowledge of get down place. To work. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. I want an economy that respects the people and the planet. That's not us holding hands singing Kumbaya. That's math. Presented in the Emerging Economics series, Judy Wicks delivered a speech, Building a New Economy, What's Love Got to Do With It, on October 10th, 2014. Let's have a look at it. I named my book, Good Morning, Beautiful Business, because during the years that I ran the White Dog Cafe, I lived above the shop, and I had a sign in my bedroom closet that I would see each morning when I got dressed that said, Good morning, beautiful business. And it was a reminder to me of just how beautiful business can be when we put our creativity and our energy and our care into producing a product or service that our community actually needs. It was a time in the morning when I would think about my own business and how the farmers were out in the fields picking uh, organic fruits and vegetables to bring into town that day. And I would think of the farm animals out in pasture and sunshine and of our goat herder, Dougie, who said that when she kissed her goat's ears, it made the cheese better. And I think that's probably true. So for me, a business is about relationships. Money is simply a tool. Business is about relationships with everybody that we buy from and sell to and work with, and about our relationship with Earth itself and all the other species who live here with us. My business was really the way that I expressed my love of life, and that's what made it a thing of beauty. Um, so I thought I'd uh, do a, a couple readings this evening from my book, uh, and the first one is um, uh, the ending of the preface. <clears throat> This book is both a love story and a business book. It's about a love of life, nature, animals, community, and unique local culture. A love of good food and family farms, and a love of democracy, all being threatened by a global economic system driven by profit. It's also about a deep love of business and how we can embrace a way of doing business that is beautiful, that nurtures all that we cherish, and that furthers the creation of a whole new economic system based on caring relationships. Though this new economy is global in vision, my story, and the story for each of us, begins right at home, in our own community, and with our own capacity to recognize and protect what we truly care about. So my first um, community was a small town in western Pennsylvania called Ingemar, this was the busiest intersection because this is where the beer distributor was located. Uh, and it was in Ingemar that I grew up witnessing the role that small business owners play in community life. I would go with my mom or my grandmother to the butcher shop, and the butcher would ask, uh, how was that steak last Saturday night? Or how was that turkey on Thanksgiving? Uh, because he knew what farm it came from. Uh, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Uh, these are the relationships that form the foundation uh, for community life that I witnessed uh, as a child. So another really important influence on me uh, growing up uh, was the experience of living in an Eskimo village in Alaska in 1969, just after I graduated in the old days uh, from college. Uh, and uh, joined a VISTA, I was a VISTA volunteer uh, with my first husband. Uh, and here I saw a way of life that was new to me, uh, a way of life that has uh, existed for thousands of years that is based on cooperation and sharing, as opposed to competition and hoarding, uh, as I saw growing up. Uh, the Eskimos um, had a, a tradition of a seal party 
When a man caught his first seal at the end of a long, hard winter, his wife would have a seal party and invite all the other women uh, over to their house and divide the seal meat up uh, between the families. As you can see in these buckets, they're full of uh, seal meat and blubber, and then anything else that the family had accumulated during the year that wasn't needed to, uh, for survival was also distributed to the other families, and the women are bundling up in their skirts. Uh, they use their skirts as pockets. Uh, might be buttons or some fabric or a can, a can of, uh, of food. And then at the end of the um, uh, party, uh, candy and bubble gum was thrown up into the air, uh, which the women caught uh, in their skirts. And I was right out there, too, because there wasn't a lot of excitement in the Eskimo village, uh, longing for, uh, to get a root beer barrel or a fireball or something. Uh, so um, the Eskimos had no uh, sense of envy. Um, if I said, uh, oh, I like that scarf you're wearing with the leaves and so on, uh, if you were an Eskimo, you'd take it off and give it to me. But please don't, because I've gotten some things that way. You have to uh, watch what you admire when you're around Eskimos. Uh, but, um, you know, it made me realize that our economy is often driven by envy, you know, through advertising. The advertising um, makes us envious, you know, of the models uh, in their fashions and makeups and whatnot, or the guys with the macho uh, beers and cigarettes and cars and whatnot, uh, making us be envious and wanting to buy more and more uh, and, and, and never, um, never ending. Um, and so I realized that in our society, we actually admire the ones who hoard the most. Uh, who have the largest houses or the most number of cars or the largest uh, wardrobes. Um, and it, uh, yet I saw that the Eskimos uh, were the uh, happiest uh, people that I had ever met uh, to this day uh, are. Um, and it's because their happiness did not depend on material goods and on money. Uh, their happiness and their sense of security depended on community, a sense of community, uh, something that uh, we've often lost in modern times, not here, of course, in the Great Barrington area, uh, but elsewhere. So uh, my first business was um, the Free People's Store in Philadelphia. When my first husband and I came back from our experience in Vista, we were each given $1,500 as our stipend, so we had $300, and we decided to start a store in Philadelphia. And uh, with our $3,000, that's all we had. Uh, we couldn't uh, afford to rent an apartment and a storefront, so we actually slept in the store. And we thought of different unique ways uh, to um, use our money. We would buy, like, long underwear that was uh, white underwear that maybe it was a $2, and then we would dye them different colors and sell them for $5. And I hung a pair in the window and put, opened the back flap to put our open and close sign. The uh, fixtures um, were all things that we found on garbage day. The wooden crates were from Chinatown. Uh, we discovered that these were all put out um, because uh, they were used to ship the goods from China to Philadelphia, and then they were thrown in the trash. So we gathered them all up each week on uh, garbage day. And uh, as a child, I was my hobby was building forts up in the woods, so I was really good with a hammer and nail, and I just nailed all these crates together and painted them different colors. Uh, and that's how we got our fixtures. And back in, there, in those days, this was in 1970 that we started the store. Uh, we used to say um, that you can't trust anyone over, over 30. You know, that was the 1960s uh, motto, more or less. And so we decided we wouldn't sell to anyone over 30. So all of our merchandise were like the dangly earrings, the candles, the frisbees, uh, ceramic uh, dishes, mattress bedspreads, you know, all that kind of hip uh, culture, uh, counterculture aware from the 60s. Uh, we also uh, sold clothing. Uh, again, we used recycled, reclaimed uh, fixtures for our store, an old uh, spool from an electric company, uh, an old barrel, and so on. I did these super graphics. That's me taking my picture in the mirror. Uh, macrame belts, uh, Levi's, uh, uh, T-shirts, and whatnot. And I'll read you another passage that sort of illustrates this time in my life. In the beginning, we couldn't buy our jeans from a big brand name like Levi Strauss and Company because we couldn't make the minimum order. All we could afford was to buy three pairs and three sizes from a lesser-known brand. Once we splurged and bought three pairs of purple velvet bell-bottom jeans, a big investment for us. They were the most expensive items in the store, and we were eager to sell them so we could buy six more pairs, then 12, and so on. The purple velvet jeans led to something we hadn't yet thought about. 
One day, when I was in the store alone, a group of 10 or 12 high school girls descended on the store all at once. I was trying desperately to keep my eyes on each of them as they asked me questions to draw me to different parts of the store. Suddenly, they all left as they had come at once, and I noticed with dismay as they hurried out the door that one of the girls was wearing a pair of the purple velvet jeans. Stop, they're my jeans, I cried out, and they took off running. I locked the door and gave chase. Up the street and around the corner we went, dodging traffic across a busy thoroughfare. I was gaining ground, and as the group reached the parking lot of the supermarket at the corner of 44th and Walnut, I lunged and tackled the culprit to the ground. Without thinking, I unzipped the jeans and yanked them off her. (laughs) As she lay on the sidewalk in her underpants screaming, I ran back to the store and and triumphantly returned our purple velvet jeans to the shelf. I was determined that we would sell that pair and more and more and more until someday Levi Strauss and Company will be very glad to sell to us. Uh, and it turned out that they were very glad to sell to us because the store grew up to become a national, uh, international chain called Urban Outfitters, uh, which now has um, among its brands uh, Anthropology, um, The Free People, which is not what we were pro- prototyped for. We were the prototype for Urban Outfitters, uh, and of course our Urban Outfitters itself, and Terrain, a, a, um, a, um, a garden shop. And my first husband continues to be the CEO and board chair um, of the corporation. So, um, but uh, it wasn't long before I realized that I needed to leave the marriage. Uh, he had been my boyfriend from fifth grade. Uh, and you'll have to read the book to find out why, but I decided uh, to move on. And I'll read you a little passage uh, from that time. Dick's and my lives would take drastically different turns. He continued on with the Free People's Store, and I had no idea where life was leading when I packed my bags and left my husband home in business. I got only a block away when I ran a red light and collided with another car. Luckily, no one was hurt, but the car I was using could not be driven. A passerby offered to help me home. But I can't go home. I've just left my husband. My bags are packed, and I've got to keep going, I poured out as we stood on the sidewalk. And now I have to find a job fast, because I need money to repair the car. Maybe I can help, said the passerby, a very friendly, blonde, curly-haired young man about my age. I work in a restaurant called La Terrasse on the 3400 block of Sanson Street near the university, and they have an opening for a waitress. I'll take it, I said immediately, as if I were talking to the person who was hiring me. And so that's how I got into the restaurant business that would be my life for the next 40 years, quite by accident. (laughs) So, moving on. And I learned a lot in that store, because when we started the store, uh, we were anti-business 1960s hippies that thought that profit was a dirty word. Uh, And I learned um, through the Free People Store um, that profit is a necessary part of business. Um, So it really helped me a lot. And it also taught me how how to express my values uh, through business, uh, because we would put uh, white doves in the window for peace. You know, it was during the war and so on. Uh, So it was a great experience for me to get started. Um, so I moved to the 3400 block of Sansom Street. This is a watercolor that's probably 100 years old. Uh, but I was really uh, captivated by this uh, uh, block of Victorian brownstone houses. And I decided that this was the place uh, that I wanted to live. Uh, and I believe that... Uh, the beginning of creating a sustainable local economy is taking responsibility for a place to say, this is where I want to be. I want to live in Great Barrington, uh, and I'm going to take responsibility for my community. I'm going to find out where does the food come from? Where does energy come from? Where does our waste go? Uh, and that's how it all began for me. Uh, and eventually I decided this was where I wanted to start a business, uh, where I wanted to raise my family, uh, and where I wanted to build community for 40 years. So um, I, I, I won't tell you the whole story about La Terrasse. I started as a waitress. I became the general manager. I became a partner in the business. And then in 1983, I started the White Dog Cafe on the first floor of my house, and that's the entranceway. In the beginning, it was just uh, a, a simple muffin shop, muffin and coffee takeout shop. We didn't even have any tables and chairs. And when I decided that I wanted to um, advance the concept to offer hot food, I couldn't afford to put the uh, exhaust ducts up through three floors of our home. Uh, So we uh, uh, set up a charcoal grill in the backyard. Um, Here's our chef and uh, uh, put some tables around the grill in the backyard. And uh, then my children, uh, who were two and four at the time, went with me over to the Penn campus and we handed out uh, flyers. And then we would run back to look into the backyard to see if any customers had uh, arrived. 
Um, and, you know, the uh, dishwasher was a three-bowl sink uh, in the indoor dining room in the corner, and when you finished your plates, you just passed the dirty ones over to the dishwasher, who merrily washed them as he chatted with you. Um, if you needed to use the restroom, uh, you were directed to go up to our house and wave at the two-year and four-year-old on your way to the family bathroom. Uh, so that's how we began. And at the end of the night, uh, the last waiter would deposit the, um, the money under my pillow uh, as I went to sleep to get up early to take my kids to school. Uh, so we um, it grew the business. Uh, this addition was built over that outdoor eating area, uh, and the White Dog be gradually became a 200-seat uh, restaurant um, and uh, did ab about $5 million in sales. And one of the uh, key elements in terms of getting uh, funding for uh, getting bank financing for our additions was getting our liquor license. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a little story uh, about that. So I had... Um, uh, just tasted my first uh, really great beer uh, called Anchor Steam from San Francisco. Anyone here ever uh, try that beer? It's a wonderful uh, beer. Uh, and uh, so I, I couldn't wait to get my liquor license so I could start uh, selling it. I was finally able to begin serving the new American beers I was longing for. This was in 1985, by the way. Uh, customers were surprised when they came into the bar and ordered a popular beer like Heineken to be told that we didn't carry the brand. Then how about a Lohenbrau? Nope. Well, then I'll take a Michelob. Not that either. Then just give me a Bud. Sorry, but how about one of these beers? Handing over our beer list, mighty short at the time, the bartender explained that the White Dog carried only beers from small, independent breweries, later called craft or microbrews, that brewed beer in small batches. <clears throat> I soon discovered that unlike wine, beer is best when fresh and without the preservatives needed for long-distance shipping, just like local food. So I upped the ante. Not only did I want flavorful, all-American beer, I became determined to have beer that was fresh, local, and made without preservatives. So I was thrilled to hear in 1987 that an excellent new brewery had opened just 60 miles to the west in Adamstown. It was not only the first new brewery in Pennsylvania since Prohibition, but it was owned by a woman. I immediately called up the owner, Carol Stout, pictured there, and asked about ordering her beer. At first, Carol thought 60 miles was too far for her beer to travel. She was in the local too. But I convinced her to sell to me. And she drove into town with a keg strapped into her passenger seat with a seatbelt. <laughs> we laughed about that years later when Carol was celebrating the 20th anniversary of Stout's Brewery after winning many a gold medal at the Great American Beer Festival. It wasn't long before Stout's began brewing our private label beer in 22-ounce bottles. I named it Leg Lifter Lager uh, and designed this label uh, for the bottle. <laughs> so, it was a very uh, popular beer. So uh, these are my children, Grace and Lawrence, uh, who were two and four when I started the White Dog. And I put their picture in here because I want to make the point about how important it is um, to my story that I lived and worked in the same community. Uh, oftentimes, uh, in the business world, we're taught to leave our values at home when we go to work. Um, so we become very compartmentalized. Um, it's about um, teaching your children the golden rule uh, when you're at home, and then when you get to work, uh, gold rules. The golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules. Um, and this idea of making decisions um, for uh, the purpose of how much money will it make me uh, has caused really most of the problems in the world, from inequality to environmental devastation and actually um, uh, to war. So um, for me, living and working in the same place, my values were um, all the same 24-7. Uh, and I also feel that when you live close to those affected by your decisions, um, a short distance between me as the business decision maker and my employees, my customers, my neighbors, my natural environment, that we're more likely to make decisions for the common good. And I'll give you a couple examples um, of that. So the person on the, on the right is uh, Greg Coleman, who was a dishwasher at the White Dog for a long time. This particular picture was taken in Havana, Cuba. Uh, we had an international sister restaurant project where we would take our customers and staff uh, to various countries that were at odds with the U.S. government to find out what was the effect of our foreign policy on the lives of others. 
Um, and uh, Greg went with us on our trip to Cuba, and uh, he suddenly decided that he wanted to go into the kitchen and uh, help wash dishes. And uh, when I was looking at the slide the other day, I realized uh, why, because that Cuban dishwasher was pretty cute. Uh, so, but anyway, I have this slide up here because I want to tell uh, the story about uh, paying the living wage. I went to a business conference and I heard about this concept, which is the voluntary commitment on the part of a business owner to pay not the required minimum wage, but the living wage of what it actually costs to live in a particular community. And I thought to myself, well, that's a great idea, but it would never work in the restaurant business. How could you pay entry-level dishwashers and prep people a living wage? And then I was in the kitchen one day, and Greg happened to look up at me, along with two other dishwashers, as they were doing some task in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off in my head. And I thought, what have I been thinking? Of course I want Greg, uh, who works here 40 hours a week, and anyone else who works here full-time, to be able to pay their rent and buy their food and buy their clothes. Of course I want to pay a living wage. Uh, but that came about because of my personal relationship with my employees. Another example is my relationship with nature. I had heard about climate change, and we began to have programs on climate change in 1998 at the White Dog Cafe. Also, I knew that Pennsylvania, along with California, were the first two states to be deregulated so that we could actually purchase renewable energy. But I hadn't been motivated to make this change until there was a drought in Pennsylvania. And I went up to the woods where I love to hike and saw the effect of the drought on the woods that I cared about, that the leaves at the top of the trees were beginning to fall, even though it was early August. I came to the stream, and it was just uh, bone dry with dust on the rocks. And as I walked through the forest, uh, there was just an eerie silence of just the sound of the crackling twigs and leaves, and not even the birds were singing. And there was just a sense of, of the fear of fire in the air. And all of a sudden, I just got it. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is what climate change is about. And this was about 15 years ago um, and, or more. And um, I thought to myself, gee, um, this is what it's going to be in the future. The parts of the world are going to have droughts and fires and other parts, storms and floods. And um, I want to do something about this. So I just went over, I became a tree hugger. I found this big oak tree, put my arms around it, pressed my face against the bark and promised I would go back to Philadelphia and find out how to, re to sign up for renewable energy. And the White Dog became the first uh, business uh, in Pennsylvania to buy 100% of our electricity from uh, renewable sources. Uh, another, and, and this came about because of my relationship with nature, uh, because of my love uh, for the woods. Uh, another example is my relationship with my community uh, in West Philadelphia. I had um, stopped at a red light and was uh, watching the kids uh, come out of a public school near my house and thinking to myself, uh, this is the public school in my own neighborhood, but I don't know these kids because my own kids go to a private Quaker school. Uh, and I had this desire to find out who are these kids. So I went into the um, school and talked to the principal, and we started a mentoring program for 10th graders from the school that were interested in the hospitality business. And they came in uh, groups of four per year. We did this for 15 years. Um, and uh, each of the uh, students worked in the kitchen, the office, the dining room, and so on. And then at the end of the year, uh, our staff helped them put on a, a special event um, that they called the Hip Hop. And they picked the DJ and the decorations, and our staff helped them to uh, cook the meal. And um, also at the end of the year, we would give out a scholarship to a graduating senior to go to a culinary school or a restaurant management school. And the fellow with the blue uh, hat, uh, his name was David, uh, was the first to graduate and receive the scholarship uh, from us. And about um, three years later, uh, he came to the hip-hop um, from um, with his girlfriend with him uh, as a college student. And as he walked across the dance floor, I felt my eyes well up. And I'm thinking, what is this that's moving me? And all of a sudden, I realized that I finally knew the answer to my question, who are these kids? There are children that all kids are our children. So another uh, important part about the white dog was our commitment to buying from local farms. Um, and this is a Judy and Mark Dornstrike from Branch Creek Farm. And Mark once said to me that successful farming is the balance between the masculine and the feminine, between efficiency and nurturing. Uh, that if you have uh, too much efficiency and not enough nurturing, you may have a very well-run farm, you're using your time very wisely, but you're not going to have an excellent product. 
On the other hand, if you have too much nurturing and not enough efficiency, you might have great tomatoes, but you're going to go out of business uh, because you're not running your farm in an efficient way. And so I began to see the whole economy in this, in this, uh, through this lens um, and saw that we were so weighted uh, towards the masculine, so weighted towards efficiency. And of course here I'm not talking about gender, I'm talking about the masculine and feminine qualities that are in each of us. Um, and nothing could be more apparent uh, than uh, industrial agriculture and the way that we raise animals um, in uh, uh, factories uh, with the battery cages of uh, hens. The whole idea is how little space can we give that hen? How little light and air? How little food and water to make the cheapest um, egg possible? Uh, the most efficient system, the least expenses, uh, no nurturing here. Then I've, uh, so then we switched to all uh, pastured uh, chickens and of course only um, eggs from pastured hens. Then I found out about the um, horrible way in which the mother pigs are raised in the factory system. Uh, and I just could not believe this, that these mother pigs are kept in cages so small that they can't take a step forward or backward or lie down. Uh, their entire lives they stand here. They're artificially inseminated. The baby's taken away prematurely artificially inseminated again, is that there are pieces of equipment in a factory. No, no breath of fresh air, no ray of sunshine, no socializing with other pigs. They like to sleep in big pig pals. They're very intelligent beings. Uh, they say they're as intelligent as a three-year-old child. And these are mammals, like our dogs, like us. And all of us mammals have the capacity for the same emotions, ranging from uh, joy uh, to despair. And here we keep these animals in this way. Uh, and I was horrified. I felt this was a violation of nature to treat these mothers in this way and a breach of our duty um, as the stewards of farm animals. So I realized uh, in horror that the pork I was serving at the white dog must come from the system. Because unless you know otherwise, that's where all the pork in our country comes from. Something like over 95% of pork comes from these fact horrible factories. Um, so, um, of course, we switched. Um, well, first of all, I just came to the kitchen and said, we have to take off the, the pork. We, ha we cannot serve um, uh, bacon, ham, uh, pork chops uh, from this cruel and unhealthy system. Uh, and then we went about finding a source uh, for pastured pork asking our farmer who brought us in free-range eggs and chicken uh, where to go. And we found um, places uh, out in Lancaster County. Here's one of them. And this is how the pigs like to hang out, you know, in the mud and the sunshine and in social groups. Then I found out the, about the plight of the cow, um, how cows are herbivores. Um, they want to be out in pasture eating grass. Uh, but because of our, the, the, fair, the uh, farm bill subsidy to uh, grain commodity growers, it's cheaper uh, because of our tax dollars, uh, making grains very cheap, to take the um, animals off pasture and feed them grains. Uh, so these are uh, grass-fed um, beef, Angus beef. This is Dr. Bill Elkins from uh, Chester County who uh, raised uh, beef for the white dog, and 100% of our beef was local grass-fed. Um, not even finished on grain, and we were famous for our Buck Run Farm burgers. Uh, the rock and roll uh, soul jazz singer Patti LaBelle uh, would pull up in her limo and she would um, run in to get a Buck Run uh, grass-fed burger. And of course the dairy cow, uh, horrendous uh, treatment of dairy cows who are often just in barns 24-7 hooked up to milking machines. I don't know how many of you know this, but in the dairy business, the uh, calves are immediately taken away from their mothers in most cases uh, so that, uh, and never get to drink their mother's milk so that uh, we adults, uh, human beings, uh, can drink the milk meant for the baby calves. Uh, I thought this was just such a perverse idea. Uh, of course, in the olden days, uh, human beings shared the milk uh, with the calf. It was unheard of uh, to take the calf away from its mother. Um, this is um, a Hawthorne Valley uh, farm out in the, in the Hudson Valley that uh, keeps their calves with mothers for the first nine months, um, reduces the profit uh, to share uh, the milk with the calf, uh, but that's, this is the humane way to do it. And it's also, they found many benefits of, of doing this. So I finally got to the point where I looked at my menu. This, by the way, is Dougie, the one that kisses her goat's ears, uh, where we got our goat cheese. But I finally got to the point where I looked at my menu and thought, um, we've done it. 
our, we have a cruelty-free menu that everything on our menu, our animal products, our poultry and meat and so on, uh, comes from small family farms where the animals are treated with respect and kindness and plenty of nurturing. Um, we're the only restaurant in Philadelphia that's doing this. This is, uh, this is going to be our market niche, our competitive advantage. This is all about us. Uh, and then I thought to myself, well, Judy, if you really do care about those pigs, if you really do care about these small farmers that are being driven off uh, by the large corporate farms, if you care about the workers in these horrible slaughterhouses and uh, factory farms, if you care about the environment that's being polluted by sometimes 10,000 sows in one barn where all that manure goes into the river and pollutes it and kills the fish, if you care about the consumers that are eating this meat that's full of antibiotics and hormones, then rather than keeping this as your competitive advantage, you'll share this information of your sourcing with your competitors. So that was a transformational moment for me, uh, which really changed my life, uh, moving from competition to cooperation. Uh, and I realized that there is no such thing as one sustainable business. No matter how many great practices we have in our company, you know, recycling, paying a living wage, you know, solar hot water, whatever it is, um, we can only be part of a sustainable system and that we have to share and cooperate in order to build that sustainable system uh, where the whole system shares that value, the whole local food system in this case. Um, so um, I asked the farmer who was bringing us in uh, two pigs a week. We, we, we bought the whole pig. That's better for the farmer and learned to use all the parts of the pig. And Farmer Glenn was bringing us in two pigs a week. This is actually a picture taken at the Dance of the Ripe Tomatoes, our harvest uh, dinner. I made these tomatoes out of old red satin uh, bed sheets that were given to me when I got married as a, a gag gift. <laughs> I turned them into these big, uh, big tomatoes. But anyway, I asked Farmer Glenn if he'd like to expand his business and deliver pork to more restaurants in, in Philadelphia. And he said that he did want to do that. And I said, well, what's holding you back? And he said he needed $30,000 uh, to buy a refrigerated truck so that he could deliver to many restaurants at the same time. So I loaned him the $30,000 and he bought the truck. And then I started a nonprofit, um, Fair Food, um, and uh, began to put 20% of my profits uh, into my nonprofit work. Uh, and the first uh, job of Fair Food was to make a directory of all the farms that the white dog bought from with a phone number, all the products that they carried, and so on. And we went around and distributed it to all the other restaurants and stores uh, in town. And Fair Food is uh, now uh, 14 years old and uh, has a number of employees, has a farmer assistance program, many different programs, farm to institution programs, uh, and started a, a farm stand at the Reading Terminal in Philadelphia that's open seven days a week, uh, year-round. We represent um, almost 100 different producers, uh, both farmers and small food enterprises that make everything from energy bars and ice cream and uh, ground flour, uh, crackers. We now have our own crackers in Philadelphia, which we're really happy about, so we can put our local cheese on our local cracker, wash it down with local beer. Uh, we have our local, local, uh, locally distilled gin now for my gin and tonic, so we can't grow limes for it, but <laughs> I can't do everything. Uh, so anyway, um, Another thing about the traditional business world that I don't like is the mantra, grow or die, that we measure our success by continual growth of our businesses, uh, bigger and bigger and bigger. And so people would say to me, well, how many white dogs are there? I'd say, well, just one. Um, and sometimes I thought, well, I'm a big sissy because I'm turning down offers to start a white dog in New York or D.C. or whatever. But I realized that if I were to start a chain of white dogs that I would lose what was uh, most meaningful to me, and that's the authenticity of it, the relationships that I have with my employees and customers and suppliers and neighbors and so on. Um, so I decided that rather than starting a white dog in someone else's community, I would look to see what my community needed, and I started uh, a black hat, uh, which was a retail store next door to the white dog uh, that specialized in selling locally made uh, products as well as fair trade. Uh, that's a picture of the inside of the store, and someone pointed out that this kind of looks like a contemporary free people store uh, for the box-type shelving. 
So um, another really great uh, example of this idea of rather than growing a chain but see what your community needs is Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a very famous deli uh, that could have become a national chain. But instead of doing a chain, they looked to see what their community needed, and they started a creamery uh, that made ice cream and cheese and so on. They started a bakery. They started a candy company. Uh, they started a full-service restaurant. They started a small farm to supply uh, their, their businesses. Um, so, and they not only did that, and now they have kind of a family of businesses uh, that are um, uh, reducing the number of uh, imports into the community with locally uh, produced products, but they're also creating more ownership opportunities because they uh, give those opportunities to their employees um, to be owners in each of these uh, new businesses. So they're a great local living economy model. So I began to see chains as being invasive species. You know, they go into other people's communities and they smother out uh, the indigenous businesses uh, as they spread their brands uh, across the country. So I thought to myself, well, if this is the bad way, invasive species, how does nature grow? And I realized that nature grows deeper in place. Nature grows deeper uh, in its own ecosystem. Uh, and that we as businesses can do the same thing. Nature grows to become more complex, more diverse, and more adaptive to the needs of their ecosystem, just as we as businesses can grow by adapting to the needs of our own community. Then I started thinking about how we could grow in ways other than the material, uh, that we could reimagine growth uh, and grow by increasing our knowledge, by expanding our consciousness, by deepening our relationships, by developing our creativity, by building community, and having more fun. So I'll give you some examples of the ways on which the white dog uh, did each of, of these things, many times all at the same time. Uh, we did uh, table talks, uh, lectures on issues of public concern, uh, from foreign policy to the environment to public education to local arts and culture. Here's Patch Adams uh, at a breakfast talk, the doctor that uh, talks about how humor is an important part of healing. We did storytelling nights, uh, giving voice to underrepresented voices, uh, for instance, tales from jails with ex-offenders telling their story. Uh, in this case, it's a gay couple and a lesbian couple uh, talking about same-sex marriage. We did uh, community tours. This was a tour of uh, uh, community gardens. Uh, this is a tour to uh, a state penitentiary to see their organic uh, gardening project where the inmates talked to us about how tending to the plants uh, helped heal them. Affordable housing tours, we did solar tours, all different kinds of tours, farm tours, of course. We had special events. This was our Martin Luther King uh, annual memorial dinner. Uh, that we held every year. Um, it was the first special event that I held and the last I did when I sold the restaurant in 2006. Uh, Freedom Seder we had each spring. We'd have a Native American Thanksgiving dinner, Happy Birthday Gandhi uh, every year, Noche Latina, Ramon Reggae. Um, this was one of my favorite block parties that we had every uh, eve of 4th of July called the Liberty and Justice for All Ball, uh, where we had an outdoor uh, dinner, a farm fresh uh, products, uh, and then afterwards I did a little skit called Birth of the Nation, and I gave birth in this bed out there. <laughs> and I'll, I'll show you how that went. Uh, first out came a Revolutionary War fellow playing his drum. Then here I come as the pregnant colonial woman with a big beach ball under my dress, led by my midwife. And on my, on my back I had this sign. <laughs> <laughs> My midwife helped me into my bed and said to the audience, one, two, three, and everybody yelled, push. And then under the covers, I pushed my beach ball down through a hidden hole in the bed. And my midwife delivered my twins. Here comes the first one. Here comes the next one. One was called, oops, this is, one was called Liberty. The next, Justice. And they hopped up into the stage and did a tap dance to Yankee Doodle Dandy. And then we... Wheeled out the Statue of Liberty, and we lit our sparklers and sang "God Bless America." Uh, and I think this is the this is the kind of fun I like to have. Oftentimes, we we feel that we have to spend a lot of dollars and a lot of carbons to fly to Hawaii or Fiji or someplace to have a good time, uh, when we can really have more fun in our own communities, uh, and that's where we can really deepen relationships um, that are last a lifetime. 
So it was in these ways, you know, through our special events and um, through our educational programs that we uh, were able to find a new way to grow uh, that worked for us and worked for the earth and worked for our community. So speaking of revolutions, um, the food revolution, I believe, is uh, going on right now, is going strong here in the Berkshires, uh, where we are bringing back power uh, from corporations who have controlled our food supply for so long, uh, bringing that control back to our uh, communities. And I'll uh, show you, I'll tell you a story about another revolution that really inspired me, uh, and that was the Zapatista Revolution in Chiapas, Mexico. And I was uh, really curious to know uh, why the Zapatistas had their uprising on uh, the day that NAFTA went into effect, January 1st, 1994. Um, and so I went down there, um, ended up going down uh, every year for 10 years, uh, and found that the, the Zapatistas had their uprising because they predicted that when the borders were lowered between Mexico and the United States, that uh, corporate corn growers subsidized by our tax dollars in the Farm Bill uh, would dump cheap corn into Mexico, uh, putting out of business the indigenous corn growers. And of course, that's exactly what happened and caused a huge increase in illegal immigration from Mexico in the 90s. So um, I had never heard about the concept of uh, self-reliance before. I never really thought about it, I guess. Uh, but the Zapatistas had the revolution because they demanded self-reliance, local self-reliance. They demanded the right to sell their corn in the domestic marketplace and not be forced into the global economy. They demanded the right to be able to grow their food for their own families and their own community. They demanded the right to educate their children in their own language with their own values. They demanded the right to maintain um, a local culture uh, and not be sucked into the um, monoculture of corporate globalization of Western lifestyle. They demanded the right to be able to wear the same clothes that their women had been weaving for literally thousands of years instead of being forced to work in maquiladoras, the sweatshops along the border, making cheap cloth, uh, clothing for the United States uh, and Europe. So um, I began to see that although I went to Chiapas to support the indigenous farmers there, I saw the parallels between what was happening to the indigenous farmers in Chiapas with what was happening to the farmers at home in Pennsylvania, that our small farmers were being driven out of business too by the large corporations who were taking over uh, the land and also by development. Um, and so I started to see how around the world, and I learned this partly from our International Sister Restaurant Project, uh, that communities everywhere were losing our local self-reliance, that we were becoming dependent around the world on large corporations, multinationals, to deliver our basic needs to us through long-distance shipping routes, uh, bringing us our food, our energy, our clothing, our building materials from far away. Um, and we were no longer producing these basic needs at home. So I began to uh, envision a different global economy, a global economy that was a network of sustainable local economies, where basic needs are produced locally, food, shelter, clothing, energy, uh, and that we, we, we trade globally through fair trade, win-win, small relationships, intricate relationships around the globe, um, and what we have in excess in our communities uh, to bring in what we don't have in our communities, bananas, coffee, or whatever, and that we also export what's unique to our region, what our local entrepreneurs have invented, uh, a special fashion, a great wine or cheese, uh, innovation uh, by our local entrepreneurs, and that's, this is what we trade around the world. So with this idea in mind, I founded uh, Bali in, in 2001, uh, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. And basically, we do these three things. We connect leaders uh, from around North America, Canada, and the United States who are leaders in building local economies. And we connect them to the, each other, because oftentimes this work is very lonely. You feel very isolated. So we connect them to each other. Uh, we provide more leadership training. They share their great ideas with each other, support each other, and so on uh, through our Bali Fellowship Program. We spread solutions through our conferences and webinars and so on about what's working in the Berkshires that could be shared with what's happening in South Carolina. And we drive investment uh, from the stock market uh, to local economies. So um, 
E.F. Schumacher used to talk about doing small scale on a large scale. And that's what we're trying to do in the localization movement, uh, Bali, uh, the Schumacher Center, and other allies. Uh, and one of the basic principles is local business ownership, uh, that we want to bring that economic control back from these faraway boardrooms through having uh, and supporting local businesses, not just the retail businesses, but also manufacturing. Uh, and, of course, it's the local businesses that give our town uh, its unique uh, character and identity. An important part of all this is investing locally to take our money out of the stock market that's just being used to further destroy our world and cause great inequality and invest it in our local entrepreneurs. Uh, this is a logo from San Francisco made. And this is certainly a, a spreading concept. Uh, we need to change public policies to support local economies, um, everywhere from the federal level in, in changing the Farm Bill and other policies to our local politicians in cities and states where oftentimes the, the strategy for economic development is in bringing a Walmart to town or bringing any kind of large corporation to provide jobs instead of supporting our local entrepreneurs. But although this has really changed a lot in the last 10 years. Uh, and we want prosperity for all, that this is a time in history uh, where we can give opportunity uh, for those who have been left out of ownership opportunities in the last economy to have ownership opportunities in the new economy. Um, and we have many opportunities for ownership because we need to uh, start many new businesses to process food, to uh, make clothing, to start energy businesses, and so on. This is a picture of... Um, our board retreat of our local business um, organization in Philadelphia, the Sustainable Business Network, which I also started out of the White Dog. Uh, in fact, that's Marion Fuller there, uh, smiling and laughing, and she was an intern at the Schumacher Center a while back. Um, and when we do this work, there's um, great collective joy uh, in working together towards a shared vision uh, for our economy. I'll read uh, one last passage here. Our traditional capitalist economic system has perpetuated a worldview of separation by teaching individualism and competition, viewing nature as a resource to be exploited, measuring success and self-worth by material wealth, and giving us the false notion that only money brings security. As I see it, greed and violence often come from a lack of faith. Faith, as I saw in the Eskimo village, that the universe is abundant and can provide for everyone if we're willing to share, cooperate, and live in harmony with all of life. In working towards such a world, local living economies are shifting consciousness by modeling these values and demonstrating that our real security, as well as our happiness, lies in strong, self-reliant communities within a healthy web of life. By building a new economy, global economy, in which every community has food and water security and locally produced renewable energy, we are creating the foundation for world peace. We can reinvent what it is to be an American. Rather than a country of rugged individuals, we can be a country of rugged communities. Perhaps we always have been. And ultimately, uh, we are all members of the vibrant community uh, of life on Earth. Our industrial economy, with so little connection to place and so little uh, nurturing, uh, with so much emphasis on efficiency, has greatly diminished the vibrancy of our Earth community, the web of life that supports all of us. But when we understand that all life is interconnected, uh, spiritually and economically and environmentally, we can feel our connection uh, to the suffering pigs. We can feel our connection to the struggling farmers. We can feel our connection to the polluted water and dying fish. Nature creates the conditions for more life, while our economy is actually destroying life on Earth. So there is urgency in this work, a race against time to stop climate change and environmental decline before our vibrant community uh, on Earth is damaged uh, beyond compare. Strategies and tactics are really of secondary importance. The transformation of our economy from life-taking to life-giving begins in the heart of the entrepreneur, and for that matter, the investor and the consumer as well. When I made that decision to share my, uh, with my competitors, uh, I was afraid. 
I was afraid that my sales would go down, that my profits would go down. I didn't make the decision um, because I figured out in my head that it was the right thing to do. I did it because I loved the pigs. I felt it in my heart. My love of animals, of community, of nature were greater than my fear. When we love our places and take responsibility for them, when we open our hearts and lead with love, we can build a just and sustainable economy. And if we are going to succeed in creating a viable future uh, for our children and for the children of all species, it will be because mankind has evolved to the place where we take our rightful place in the vibrant community of life, not as exploiters, but as lovers. Thank you very much. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerforneweconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher Lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust, building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region, and engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerforneweconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413-528-1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.